I believe that it was in November. The winds were rising, and out there lay Castro land, dark and mysterious. And the lights of the base were just beginning to go on in tiny pinpoints. Gitmo. I'm looking out of the window, the porthole to you. Came back and sat down on the edge of the steel bunk. In came a commander, a friend of mine, who's developed a tropical heat rash in the last couple of days. Sweats popping out on his brow, that intense, oppressive heat of pre-hurricane, which if you've never, if you've never experienced it, cannot be told. It's just like you know something's going to happen. You know it. He looks out of the porthole a little bit. Without batting an eye, he says, six of one, half a dozen of the other. I say, Brad, what do you mean? And all the while, the metal loudspeaker hanging on the bulkhead was playing rock and roll music. I love you, I love you, my teenage baby. I love you, I love you, my baby. I gave you my ring, you gave me yours. I love you, I love you, my baby. And the announcer then at the conclusion says, WGBY, the Gitmo radio station, the U.S. Navy station in Guantanamo Bay. We now continue the top 40 favorites for all of you seamen out there on the USS Little Rock, the USS Spring. I love you, I love you, I love you. And this loudspeaker is roaring through the ship, and the gray lowering clouds are coming in from the east, and the dark, the dark enigma of Castro land is looking at us. And all Brad could say was six of one, half a dozen of the other. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. Are you smoking more now, but enjoying it less? Then you should change to camels. Best tobacco makes the best smoke. The one, half a dozen of the other. And by George, she was right. It is six of one, half a dozen of the other. Now, I don't know whether or not this is a particularly Midwestern expression. Is this expression, has this expression ever been used here in the East? Six of one, half a dozen of the other. Do you realize the philosophy that this thing states? The implications that it has? Six of one, half a dozen of the other. It is a deep-seated understanding. It's not a belief. A deep-seated understanding that it's all the same in the end anyway. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. And let me tell you, when you're sitting, you're sitting in a tropical bay and you can see that wind coming down from the east, Hurricane Donna is approaching, and you're looking out over that dark, glowering Castro land, that strange enigma, that enigma where the first-name basis does not work. When, when, you, when you sit there on that, that steel deck and feel that breath of hot air, and then you go out at 2 o'clock in the morning and you throw a line in and you fish for barracuda, and that, that light touches the edge of the water and that choppy, heavy, hard water. And you see those fish moving along down there, 
just moving along past the iron sides of that ship. You play around, look a little bit, and you can see the lights out there. <laughs> you begin to know what the expression means, six of one, half a dozen of the other. I notice a very fascinating thing about the first name basis from now, that, that there are few people in the world, in fact, I don't know of any other people in the world, who are so fanatically addicted to being loved and liked as the Americans, and almost always on the most superficial of levels. Because in our own family relationships, the superficiality of our involvement is almost overpowering. Millions of kids, millions of adults. It's all, in fact, almost all of our literature, almost all of our plays are about, how come nobody loves me? How, how, how come I can't, how come I can't make it with anybody? I'm such a, why, why don't they love me? Why doesn't she love me? And this is what almost all of our plays are about. It's fascinating if, if you've, uh, yes, this, speaking of love, this is W-O-R, and, and enigmas, this is W-O-R-A-M and F-M, New York. And we'll be here until one. You know, if, if you are an observer of the theatrical scene, you realize that almost all of our plays in the last four or five years have somehow dealt with that issue. Of, How come they don't love me? How come they don't love me? Why? It's a pretty fascinating thing, you see, because these little things which we pick as entertainments, the little, the little uh, night-by-night entertainment things, are, are very much indicative of the basic fears that we have, even though the writers in many cases do not sit down to write about the basic fears. Their basic fears as individuals come out on the paper. And so it's quite obvious if you get out far away enough from the shores that the desire to be loved, that the first-name basis, is a, is a terrible thing with Americans. It's, it's an awful thing. And as a matter of fact, it, it shows up in our newspapers constantly. Khrushchev is called Krush, or K, by most of the tabloids here in New York. Why, uh, Mr. Nixon is invariably called Dick by newspapers who like him. Uh, Kennedy is called Jack by those who like him. Uh, Ike is never anything but Ike. He's just plain old, friendly, golf-swinging Ike. And uh, this is a pretty fascinating thing. I, I listen to radio interviews as I sit on the ship. They're constantly being piped through various canned programs from the States. And I hear serious-type interviewers who sit down and say, uh, Well, this afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, we're very privileged to have Dr. Charles Watanabe with us. This Mr. Watanabe, Dr. Watanabe, is the inventor of the semi-oscillating, rotating, uh, elliptical, the new method of hydro-nuclear submission. Uh, he's here this afternoon to talk to us about the future of mankind on the basis of the reciprocal oscillating theories of Oswald Spengler. Now, um, Dr. Watanabe, you don't mind if I call you Frank, do you, here on the radio? Of course, we have, I'd just like to, yeah, of course not. Of course not, sir. I don't mind if you call me Frank. Well, Frank, I'd like to ask you where you got your first interest in the submission theory of the ultra-nuclear uh, duosonics that uh, you've written such a wonderfully entertaining book that I heard Jack Parr talk about on the Jack Parr show the other day. Uh, Frank? Well, uh, uh, Charlie, I, uh, I was at the University of Southern California. I had... Uh, been uh, involved in the physical ed program there, and one afternoon I, by inadvertently, I attended a physics 
lecture under, under the idea that I was attending a, a, a physical ed lecture so for a little problem with the cataloging there. And by George, within 15 minutes, I found myself interested in moments of inertia where it was just a few short hops and jumps to quantum theory, and <laughs> here I am now. I'm thing, Charlie. Well, Frank, uh, uh, it's a fascinating thing. Our listeners uh, are very intrigued, as you know, by the whole business of nuclear sonics today, and uh, we'd like to ask you a little bit about that. But first, a word from our sponsor. Then there is a 60-second pause and a lot of gamble. Then he returns... Now, uh, Frankie, I, I would like to... I'm sitting out there. This guy isn't... They don't know. They never will know. They have, not, they have worlds completely apart and opposed. And yet, one is Charlie and the other is Frankie. The, the belief that is somehow, if you call a man by his first name, he likes you. Uh, Fidel is called Fidel by <laughs> most of the newspapers. <laughs> And this the Cubans cannot understand. Well, there's that dark, lowering land out there. You see that wind. And then later that night, I'm sitting in the old club. And I'm watching a group of eight or nine or maybe ten couples. People who had been in this area, the Guantanamo Bay area, for a long time. I don't know whether you know anything about Guantanamo Bay, but this is the big naval base, the U.S. naval base in Cuba. And it's on the far eastern end of the island. You know, it's interesting. Most people think of Havana as Cuba. They just think of Havana as Cuba. And yet, uh, Cuba is a long, narrow island that's around 500 or so miles long. You know how far 500 stretches? If you were to go 500 miles from New York, where would you be? Directly down the coast. You'd <laughs> be a long way from home. And, and way down the coast from Havana lies Guantanamo Bay. And between Guantanamo Bay and Havana, which is the area that's right up near Florida, this is the Havana area, there is almost a trackless wilderness, great rising mountains, long stretches of plantations, and finally almost nothingness all the way down in the, in the far eastern end of the Havana or the, the Cuban island. Even You can't help but think of it that way. The Cuban island. And then that, that island points in the general direction of Haiti, which is just a short distance from Guantanamo Bay, Port-au-Prince. And on the other end of that island is the Dominican Republic, which is the home of the Trujilloistas. And so this, this, this semicircular area down there, that, that strange web basket of intrigue and motion and darkness, long, glowering, lowering clouds that come whistling down. It, uh, it, it, it is an excellent place to suddenly find yourself contemplating your American naval. And I don't mean that, excuse the expression, it has nothing to do with the U.S. naval forces. <laughs> and and uh, although it does peripherally, I suppose. And, and to, uh, to, see, to see them sitting, you know, here's a group of, of eight or nine or ten uh, officers and their wives sitting around talking. Never once do they ever mention the strange, very precarious situation of their lives at Guantanamo Bay. And for days on end, I would talk and listen to them. No one ever mentions it. No one ever mentions it. And they're planning next week's party, next week's 
work. Next week, everyone buries himself in work. Fantastic work, struggling, struggling. Up at three in the morning and to bed at two the next morning. Work, work, work. You have no idea how these people work. And it's, I suppose, the one thing that most people have chosen to, to, to forget, you know, to forget. The more you work, the more you get involved, the better off you are, I suppose. And this is really an American trait. It's a fascinating American trait. And so I, I in fact, took the initiative on a couple of occasions. This is not, now, what about this? Mm, yeah. Sort of a shrug of the shoulders. Yeah. How can you tell, you know? How about let's go on to the old club and have a... Wrong. Huh? I don't know. And it goes on. <laughs> and all the while, behind the counters, in all the in all the little shops and in all the clubs at Guantanamo Bay and Gitmo, are Cubans keeping their own counsel, selling you cigars, uniforms, and hair tonic, selling you drinks, selling you malted milks, smiling occasionally. And I'm riding in a car with one of them, and I say, well, what about this? He says, sir, it is not good for me to talk of this. I said, well, what, what do you think? What do you think? I, I cannot see nothing good coming from it. Well, well yes, but how do your friends feel? I, 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 it is not good for me to talk of this. It's just like trying to talk to some kind of a crossword puzzle with all kinds of words going all different directions of different lengths and disparate meanings. Disparate? Do you prefer that? <laughs> and so, in the end, you can only look out at that long gray island and say, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. And on the way back, I'm, I'm riding along. You see, I'm just drifting along. And I just came back here by the skin of my teeth helicoptering over from one island to the next and finally grabbing a mat's plane and whistling in down here just around the hurricane and above it and sailing on one wing until finally here we are, back, back in the land where there's a sign that hangs, there's a sign that hangs on a parking lot at 43rd and 2nd Avenue. I saw this not more than a half hour before the show. Not responsible for anything. That's all the sign said. <laughs> and I thought, by Georgia, I am home. I am home because it's going to be a gay theatrical season. I am home because the musicals are going to be more musical than ever. The small cars are going to be bigger. I feel good about that. I read a little note in the paper on the way back. I pick up an old paper. It says, Charlie W. Bronson, head designer of the Watanabe Motor Car Company, which made... Quite a little splash with its new compact car last week. Says we're going to be the first compact car to give people wider seat room, longer foot room, bigger headroom, and larger motor room. The first compact car to slip down the hill again. And he said it with a ring of joy in his voice, and I knew I was home again. Yes, sir, that's my baby. No, sir, I don't mean maybe. Yes, sir, that's my baby now. Oh, by the way. Oh, by the way, na na dee da doo 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 doo. Now look, now look. What I'm merely saying is that it is six of one, half a dozen of the other. Did they ever use that expression here in the East? Did they really? They did, eh? Then we're on firm, solid American grounds. You and I both understand each other, right? 
Right, Torino. I'll never forget the time my program was broadcast over the Voice of America. Oh, this was seven or eight years ago. And uh, I was doing a program in Philadelphia. I got a call one night from a man. He said, uh, Shepard, uh, from the Voice of America, and we're, we're putting on uh, programs of unusual quality. Uh, we'd like to broadcast them around the world to let people know that we don't only have just guys that play the top 40. We don't only have guys that sit around and interview other guys and, and that we'd like to put the show on. I said, fine. And so they recorded about 10 or 12 weeks of programming. And that's the last I heard of it. Until one day, I got a letter from a friend of mine who was an engineer in a Voice of America transmitter somewhere in the far, far-flung east, way off someplace, way out there, hanging on to the edge of China or someplace, India. And he said that he was sitting at the control board one day, and all of a sudden, who comes on but Shepard? Shepard going along there saying six of one, half a dozen of the other. Oh, right, a Rooney, yes, sir, that's my baby. It's going to be all right, folks, everywhere. It's going to be okay. Just don't rock the boat. And he hears this coming out of that loudspeaker, and racing above me, was a man with a high-pitched voice translating... He's translating me into Urdu. Yes, sir, folks. Yes, sir. That's my baby. And then I sang, Yes, sir. That's my baby. No, sir. And he goes... And it was a weird thing, he says, oh, great Scott. And and the only image that, that I could that I could draw out of this was two tribal two tribal men, two ancient herders sitting in their goatskin tent somewhere up near the Afghanistani pass, with their camels grazing quietly next to the tent on, on little rocks and pieces of dirt. And they're sitting there and their ancient wheezy battery radio is picking <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be all right, folks. What did they think? Those Urdu, Urdic tribesmen. It was broadcast, I understand, later in 47 languages. Out there in that dark void, which is described by many people, one of the most fascinating feelings that you get when you get away from America and see all those things, the Lebanese coast, you see Beirut, you see Damascus. You really see it, you know. You walk. Have you ever wondered what the ground feels like when you're walking along the Damascus Road? Have you ever wondered how the water tastes? For example, in Crete, they have water there, just like we have. Yeah, the world is a kind of myth to many people, and, and to those who, who do the touring, it is a show. It's kind of like a big show that disappears when they come back to the States. And, and uh, the, the voters, by and large, look upon that dark void out there as, and this is in capital letters, the rat hole, into which you pour your money. <laughs> yes, sir, that's my baby. No, sir, don't mean maybe. When it comes to flavor, Winston has a difference. The difference is filter blend, and only Winston has it. Filter blend's the reason why Winston tastes good, like a cigarette should. 
Today, smokers know it's what's up front that counts. And up front, ahead of the filter, only Winston gives you filter blend. Rich, golden tobaccos, specially selected and specially processed for true, full flavor in filter smoking. Winston tastes good, like a cigarette should. Try Winston. Good morning. <laughs> Friendly natives out there. Is there is there anyone out there who who knows or who has any idea of what the uh this goes back into dark dark long passageways in our history. You know America has been dotted with all sorts of aphorism creators. And what generally passes for wisdom in America is merely the repetition in New forms, and when I say forms, I, I don't even mean they've been changed in content. I mean in new formations. The repetition of these various aphorisms, uh, the, the constant plethora of books on how to live successfully. Uh, positive thinking took my way right all the way up to the top, and I found that there are 28 flavors. Hmm. There are, and oh, a man of hard driving energy can get to there, that point, that top. And of course, the aphorisms, the aphorisms are a, are a substitute for really looking at the world or, and thinking about it. And so, wisdom today has become a kind of mixing around shifting of all these various little aphoristic, jingoistic ideas. Uh, every day and every way I grow better and better. This is obviously not true patently untrue. Every way and every day, each of us grows older and older, and the glands grow less and less active. The, the, the muscles grow less and less ready. Every day and every way, however, on the other hand, I grow better and better. And the mind grows more and more like a concrete block in most people's cases. But nevertheless, they repeat every way, every day, I grow better and better. Until finally you get to the you get to the situation like this kid. Did you read this little news note the other day? Only in our time, believe me, I am collecting a million of these things and I am putting them in giant file cabinets, which I will bury 200 feet deep six minutes before I finally kick off. This is going to be my own time capsule. Has nothing to do with newsreels of Elsa Maxwell. Has nothing to do with filmed interviews of Jack Parr talking to notables. Just. You know, kind of an attempt to preserve what it really was like. And listen to this one. This is what it really is like. Please, please. Americana music, please. This is a note from Louisville, Kentucky. A note that comes out of the dark void, the home of the land, the home of the brave. The land of the brave and the beautiful. I I've often felt that, that there will be a day when somebody will rewrite our national anthem the home of the board and the land of the beat. Here is a note from Louisville, Kentucky, nestling on the sylvan shores of the Ohio River. Out there in the deep inverted bowl of the Midwest, beautiful lush country strides stretching from one end of the horizon to the other, the breadbasket of our vast continent. This beautiful country, Louisville, Kentucky, a 16-year-old youth sentenced to life in prison said he turned to crime, quote, Well, because there was nothing interesting on the television and nothing to do. Harold Lee Howard has been in and out of jail since he was 12. 
He will serve at least eight years in the state reformatory before he is eligible for parole. Howard was sentenced yesterday in criminal court after pleading guilty to armed robbery in connection with a tavern holdup. Well, cause there was nothing interesting on the television. Nothing to do. Oh, yes, another note. This from New York City. Ah, the Babylon of our time. The heart, the heart, the nerve center of the thinking people, right? I say yes, right. We're the thinking ones. New York. If a new teacher fails to adjust properly to the community and the school system, he can create an unfavorable public image for himself and the schools. Dr. W. W. Thyssen, professor of education at Marquette University, reports. What, what Nothing about education. Nothing about what he says. Reminds me of the little news note that appeared in Time magazine about the guy who was teaching school up somewhere in northern Michigan Peninsula. And, and he had read Albert Camus' The Stranger. Do you know what Camus was saying? Do you know what he tried to say to people? And he had five or six youngsters in his class who seemed to be above average. And so he recommended that they read Camus' The Stranger. He was fired forthright and sentenced to ten days in jail. Nothing on the television, yes. Nothing on the television, so I kind of got bored. Figured I'd go down and knock off that SO station down the corner. Had a little excitement. And then after that, I'd buy Linda Jane a malt. Big old big boy hamburger. We'd take a ride in my 47 Ford. And we'd head for... Oh, maybe Lexington. Maybe go up to Cincy. Go on Vine Street and juke it up a little bit and have a ball. Just nothing on television, of course. Nothing to do around here. Figure I'd go down and knock off the S.O. station. Yeah, well, that, of course, that teacher of mine, he funny guy. A strange kind of public image. Nothing to do around here. Not even good television. I have a feeling that a hundred years from now, psychologists are going to call this the WPAT syndrome. In my land of I am a carnivore. <laughs> you know, speaking of carnivores, I, I it's a, there's a fascinating new development. Of course, I've always been I've been uh, fascinated by the by the growing spread of turnpikeism. To me, one of the great isms of our time is the drive, the urge to build roadways that have no beginnings, no ends, that you just go. You know. 
Go, go, go. The basic restlessness of man knows no bounds. Just go. This is turnpikeism. Giant roadways that you can that, that that are so high up off the ground that you can't see the land on either side of them. You know, you can ride practically from coast to coast now on turnpikes and not see a single living human being that is not wearing a Howard Johnson uniform. Just you whistle across the land because you secretly hate it in one way or another, even though you proclaim your love for it constantly. You never look at it, you know. You never never look at it. I'll never forget the looks on the faces of the natives of a little town called Highland, Indiana. You ever heard of Highland, Indiana? Highland, Indiana was a little crossroad town outside of Chicago that used to have these gigantic traffic jams every weekend. People are all there, and they're buying watermelons and arguing, going into the drugstore and having a, having a lemon Coke, and they're sweating, and they're all in the middle of Highland, Indiana, until one day it was announced in the state capitol that they were going to build a giant viaduct as part of the state highway turnpike system. And, of course, up to this point, all the people in Highland, Indiana had been mad at the tourists every weekend. And all the tourists had been mad because they had to slow up in Highland, Indiana because of the stoplight there. The stoplight. The, the, the common enemy, of course, was these. St- and then the day came when they put the viaduct over. There hasn't been a person in Highland, Indiana for centuries since. They just stand around with their watermelon. Nothing to do but look in television. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. <laughs> Here comes the band with a brass-buttoned, high-stepping march version of the Schaefer Beer Song. Funny I'm here in the best of circles, Schaefer all around. People all have found the pleasure doesn't pay. your band of friends first beer pleasure every beer through serve Schaefer all around this is WOR 710 and WOR FM New York owned and operated by RKO General at the WOR time signal exactly one o'clock James McCarthy reporting for up-to-the-minute reports, stay tuned to this station. Now, the news. Uncle Sam decided it would be better if Red Premier Khrushchev and his 135-man communist delegation intent on visiting the United Nations stay close to the U.N. from the time they arrive. The official word is that the Red Leader cannot travel off Manhattan Island where the U.N. building is located. Peter Tully, press officer for our State Department, tells us of the United States' decision. The question of assuring the necessary security for Mr. Khrushchev and the Soviet delegation has, of course, been complicated by the hostile public statements of the head of the Soviet government and by the destruction of an American plane over international waters by Soviet action and the continued illegal detention of two American flyers. 
The United States government therefore requests that arrangements be made for Mr. Khrushchev to reside in the closest convenient proximity to the headquarters of the United Nations and that his movements, other than those connected with arrival and departure, be limited to those required by his official mission, not beyond Manhattan Island. It was also learned today that the President of the United Arab Republic, Gamal Abdel Nasser, will attend the forthcoming U.N. General Assembly session in New York. It has been commented that the UAR leader is coming due to outside pressure from the left. More news in a moment. When excess stomach acid brings on painful heartburn, remember, in a way no other antacid does, choose and choose alone stops acid pain in the heartburn zone. It's a medical fact. Choose the chewing gum antacid stops acid pain in the heartburn zone. You see, other antacids quickly go into your stomach right through the heartburn zone higher up. But Chewing Chews releases two proven medicines in a steady flow that effectively soothes away acid pain in the heartburn zone and goes on to neutralize excess acid in your stomach. Chews brings fast, thorough relief as no other antacid does, and Chews is minty, refreshing, and no chalky aftertaste. So next time you suffer heartburn from too much acid, remember... Choose and choose alone for acid pain in the heartburn zone. Try it. Choose C-H-O-O-Z, the chewing gum antacid. The United Nations command in the embattled Congo is breathing somewhat easier today as a result of an official decree from the Congolese military command that all native soldiers lay down their arms and end the bloody warfare in that trouble-torn nation. If obeyed, this order would end the fighting in Kasai province, which broke out again last night, and end Premier Patrice Lumumba's planned invasion of secessionist-minded Katanga. While this action was being initiated at the request of Congo President Kasavubu, Premier Lumumba once again demanded that U.N. Secretary General Doug Hammarskjöld and his aides stop interfering with the Congo's internal affairs. He also said he still wants white U.N. troops to get out of the Congo. Hurricane Donna brushed past Miami area today with rains and heavy wind gusts up to 97 miles per hour. The tropical storm is now headed toward the northeast and Tampa Bay area, second most populous in Florida. Hurricane flags continue to fly along the Florida coast for more than 300 miles, and residents are warned to prepare for the deadly lady. A new communist drive has been reported in Latin America today. Informed sources claim that the Reds are making all possible plans to infiltrate and cause the downfall of the government of Salvador, a pleasant little country of coffee, lakes, volcanoes, and hardworking people. Salvador has already witnessed a number of communist-style disturbances since last month. That's the news. James McCarthy reporting. Listen, everybody. Charlie's going to be sociable. Now is the time to refresh without filling. So enjoy a Pepsi wherever you are. It's the light refreshment. But, Charlie, is that being sociable? I know, Kay. The song says it better. I think so. Stay on Always have enough Pepsi on hand. Get extra cartons. Get a case. Be really sociable. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Have a real cigarette. Have a camel. Have a camel cigarette. Have a real cigarette. Have a camel. This is WOR 710 and WOR FM New York, one of the stations of RKO General. 
like a man should. Uh, we're here until one o'clock this morning, this afternoon, tomorrow, yesterday. Ipso facto, in hoc, particular conk, in est, spittle lauk. I will award the brass figligy. Now, this made a... Uh, I've heard about five lines in my life as a kid uh, that, that impressed themselves very greatly on my mind, like a waffle. Just shoom, stuck right down in there. And I will award the brass figligy with bronze oak leaf palms. If you can tell me who said, in est gricula conk, in est spittle lauk, this is a famous radio line. In est spittle lauk, he would say. I will wear the brass figligy with bronze oak leaf. Speaking of brass figligies, uh, very fascinating little development here in radio. There's been a lot of talk recently about radio uh, doing this and going up and down and sideways. And a couple of years ago, uh, there, of course, the, the, the transitions that have gone on have been part of the radio scene, are almost cataclysmic. It's as difficult to understand. And, and oh, one point that, that uh, has impressed itself upon me, and that is that we have a tendency to separate people from the things they create, including radio. A large number of people will say, well, yeah, I mean, but uh, the, radio, uh, the radio is terrible, and people, uh, well, let me say that it's terrible because the taste of most Americans is pretty bad. This is uh, an unfortunate fact of the matter. Uh, movies turn out the dream world because this is what most people want. And, and I know the old argument says, well, yes, but you created it. No, 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 no. One small group of people cannot create a whole national psychosis. Just impossible. That, that Hitler couldn't have been Hitler unless a large numbers of Germans secretly felt the way he said uh, his philosophy was uh, conceived. In other words, you just don't create a whole image like that. It's, it's, it has to be there in the beginning. It's uh, another one of the great dreams that Americans seem to have, more than most people, is this, that we can separate the governments of every nation that we don't like from the people. In other words, uh, Khrushchev doesn't really represent the people of Russia that the communist regime there is, is really not the Russian people. You know, it's this great, this great illusion that we can separate the things that have come out of the people from the people themselves. That, that Hitler didn't represent all the Germans, no. That uh, Castro does not represent the Cubans. Well, this is a questionable thesis. Uh, that, that Ed Sullivan and Jack Parr do not represent American taste. Oh, yes, they do. Of course they do. That the people we elect president represent our taste rather than our thinking. It's a, it's a matter of taste. It's a matter of, of disposition. And you can never separate what people do on, on a large scale from what they really secretly want. Uh, and television is the way it is because most people secretly want it this way, even though they protest loudly about it. And this is quite true of radio. And there has been an interesting little development, that, and that is the development of specialty programming in radio. And all sorts of advertisers are backing various programs that are considered non-commercial in the ordinary sense. Now, what is a commercial program? A commercial program is not necessarily a program that doesn't have listeners. A commercial program is considered a program that, quote, doesn't really sell goods. Well, of course, this is a questionable thesis, too. What they really mean is, quote, a program that isn't immediately bought up by sponsors. 
that gets quite complicated. Uh, this uh, double-think that goes on within the area of public or mass communications. And the thing that I would like to note here is that more and more really fine sponsors are beginning to use specialized programming in radio. Here's an example of it. When I first came to New York, there was one place that I wanted to go and did for a short time. I'll, I'll tell you this by, by way of a kind of confession. I am a frustrated artist. <laughs> I mean, not painting type. I, I, I love to do line drawings. This happens to be my my particular disposition. Uh, I've, I've uh, fooled with oils. I've fooled. But the thing I enjoy, I enjoy drawing. I love to draw. And I have, I've been drawing ever since I was about three when I began to work on pumpkins. I was a pumpkin man all the way up through my 15th birthday. I used to occasionally draw airplanes and once in a while ocean liners. I was great with ocean liners. I love to draw ocean liners coming directly at you. Well, when I came to New York, which was about 1954-55, uh, the first thing that I did was to enroll in a couple of courses. You'll find my name in the rolls there at the Art Students League. This is a world-famous institution and it's on 57th Street. You've probably walked past it a million times. But there are a lot of things about the Art Students League which many people do not understand. And one of them is you can enroll anytime. It's not like a regular school. This is a school for artists. You can enroll anytime. You can drop anytime. You can change instructors anytime. And you can go as long as you like. And you can study what you like. And the history of it is interesting. It was, it was 85 years ago that a small a little tightly knit group of art students formed this organization called the Arts, that's why it's called the Art Students League of New York. Back around the time when the expressionistic field of painting was beginning to flower, gigantic, great billowing smoke was rising out of Europe, the uh, American artists formed the Art Students League, and their idea was to, was to help each other. Their idea was to train one another, not train really, but work with one another. You know, it's a very interesting thing about drawing. Uh, I've worked with artists, the most recent artist that I have gone out with and spent some time sketching around with is Don Kingman, who's a superb watercolorist, who, by the way, has the cover on the current Reporter magazine. The Reporter, by the way, I think, consistently has the best covers in America. Uh, and Dong, we were talking about drawing, and, and it's funny, you know, when, when a man draws, and you watch him draw, you learn a great deal about the way his eye works and the way his brain works. It's what a man sees. Uh, this, is, this is really the essence of all drawing. It's what you see. It's not how it is that you put it down on the paper. It's what you see. If you see the essentials in a form, even though you can't draw, you will get the essence of that creature down. You know, many of the finest uh, artists, many of the great, uh, for example, character, uh, not really caricatures, because I, I don't particularly fall into this area, but many of the, of the fine sketchers that we have, the pen and ink men, often are not really good drawers. They have fantastic eyes. They can see what their world is like. They look, they look at a chest of drawers, and they see that chest of drawers. They really see it. Most people walk through life and never never really see much, that if I were to ask you to describe... Now, here's an example of that. Now, all of you go into your office. A large numbers, large numbers of you go to your office every day. Probably some, some of you have been going to your office for maybe 10 or 15 years. Can you describe to me the doorknob on the door to your office? 
Can you tell me what color it is? Can you tell me what metal it's made of? How it feels in your hand? What shape it is? Very few people really see the thing that they live with. Yet they couldn't, they couldn't come near to drawing a telephone because they hardly ever look at a telephone. They hardly ever see the, the curves of a phone, the block, the chunkiness, the solidity, the, the kind of uh, aggressive rockiness of a telephone. If you could just draw that rock, you don't have to draw the details, you know, the little wires and the little knobs and the little dials. It's that rockiness. Everyone would say, oh, that's a telephone right away. They'd say, what a great telephone. <laughs> because you have gotten what the telephone says, not the little business of the eyelash. That's why when most people draw people, they get all hung up with eyelashes or how the, uh, an ear, you see, because they never really honestly see the person. They don't see the tilt of the neck on an individual. They don't see the way the person holds his shoulder. All you'd have to do would be to just draw the line of the neck and the shoulder, and you would have a perfect picture of anyone you know. You don't have to fool with the nose and the eyes and all this. But anyway, we're getting into this business of drawing. All I can say is that one of our new sponsors is the Art Student League. And if you have a little vague interest in drawing, I think you will find this a fascinating way to spend a night or two every month. I think, really, it'll open your eyes to looking at the world. This is the first step at looking at the world, is to look at objects, to look at the way a chair kind of stands out and other chairs retreat. Are you aware that some chairs retreat from you? Other ch chairs represent humans more than any other thing I know. Some chairs crouch. Other chairs sort of sort of lurk. And other chairs stand there very aggressively. And they, they just stand there. And when you're sitting on them, you're not really sitting on that chair. That chair is allowing you to rest on its knee for a bit. You know? And, and there are chairs that just lay flat. And just say, I am, I, I, here I am, come and take me. Uh, this is a very fascinating thing, chairs. And if you, if you look carefully at chairs, you can see a lot about uh, the backsides of the people you know. And, and also, uh, the, the, just to look at a glass, to, to look at a spoon. Uh, it's a great, great aesthetic thrill to, to suddenly discover the world of vision. And this is the thing, I think, more than anything else that you get when you go to a really reputable, and I'm not, I'm not recommending any, any sure course or sure track to becoming a seeing individual, but you will be surprised what you don't see. And if you would like to find out something about the Art Students League, which I, I'm, I don't even have to discuss their reputable standing in the field, their address is 215 West 57. Uh, they're right near Carnegie Hall on the Uptown side, 215 West 57th. And if you would like to get an illustrated 80-page booklet about the Art Students League, which is one of the really great institutions in its field, it's the largest in the world, incidentally, and one of the most respected in the world, uh, send a note to Art Students League at WOR, New York 18, New York, at Art Students League, WOR, New York 18, New York, or you can call them at Circle. I think the best thing to do is just call them. I am not a writer myself. Call them at Circle 74510, and there's nobody going to come out and grab you off to a life class. <laughs> it just sends you the brochure and tell you when you can register and what you can take, and I think you'll find it a ball. It's Circle 74510. You know, I'd like to say this, that my feeling, uh, such as it is, for the world, 
what little I might have, and it's always a tiny bit compared to what is offered, began when I really began to look at things. And I'm saying things. Because the minute you look at things, you understand more about people. Because people create things in many ways in their own image. They do. A sterile chair represents in many ways the sterile outlook. A, a sterile glass just standing there, a nothing glass that is used by a large number of people represents a nothing attitude, a nothing attitude towards glass. It really does. And that means also, of course, towards yourself in some ways. I'll never forget when I first went to, uh, went to Europe, one of the intriguing things that I noticed, first of all, was the great difference in the tiny things that are found throughout Europe, the great difference from those same tiny things that we have here. For example, soap dishes look very different, believe me, in Dublin than they do here. It's a completely different concept of a soap dish. The, the faucets that, that uh, pour hot water into the, into the washing bowls in a Dublin hotel do not look like the faucets we have here. There's, a, there's an ornateness. There is a sense of bugles blowing and trumpets going every time you turn on the hot water because it is much more of an event there. Hot water is just accepted here, you know. It's just a thing you, you have, that's all. Well, a, a, a sink that's in the house that pours water is a comparatively new and interesting and very dramatic thing to the Irish. So they have dramatic faucets, great big round gold faucets, and you turn it, water comes out, and it's an incident. Well, telephoning is another thing, too, that you find in France now, for example. The French have very flowery telephones because the French are very formal people when they talk back and forth. And so their telephones have mother-of-pearl handles on them. Their telephones have little golden, little golden garlands all over them and all sorts of carved wood handles and things. And talking to somebody there is much more of a formal affair. They even have formal forms of their language, you see. So it goes all the way through the telephone. Uh, telephoning here is much more of a very official sort of thing, you see. And, and it's, it's a kind of of, uh, let's say, impersonal personalization. And so our telephones are called personalized because we can get them in six different colors. Eighty-seven billion people, of course, have the same colors, but it's called personalized. <laughs> no one would think here in America of really having a truly personal telephone, like one with a pair of earplugs that plug into your ears and is made of whalebone. You know, made of whalebone with, with, with a great big... Uh, pearl horn that looks into your face and has two eyes painted on it. Now, this would be a real phone, you know. You could sit there every day and talk to the phone god. And the phone god is, is the next, and by the way, is already growing as a deity in our society. There will be a phone god within the next ten years. Well, as a matter of fact, you know that, that there is now a, a saint that controls television. You know, this is a, well, there will be a, yes, oh yes. There's a, there's a saint that's in charge of television and acting and the theater. Well, there will be a saint in within the next hundred years, I think, that will have something to do with telephone conversations. <laughs> you know, which is a modern art form here in America. It's a, it's, it's a, I, I have a feeling that, uh, you know how a hundred years ago they would collect the letters of certain people like uh, old Henry Adams and, and uh, Walpole and so on were known for their great letters. Well, the men of today will be known for their great telephone conversations. 
Some guys pour their whole personality into that little plastic knob there that they talk into. And they have no personality outside of that. You come in and you see them, and they sit there and kind of sweat and look. But get them on the phone. You know, they just sort of they just ooze through those wires. And it's, it's their art form. Just as many artists are nothing when you see them. Many writers are terrible in person. I mean, they, they are immoral a lot of ways. I mean, they, they're cruel. They're angry. They're, they're uh, selfish, measly people. But give them the paper, and they suddenly become the real him, you see, which he wants to be, and he pours it all out. Art, incidentally, is largely a means of transla translating the human soul into forms that it doesn't take. It's largely transmuting lead into gold, or conversely, often it's making gold into lead. And so the artist, uh, who might be a very secretive little nasty mean person in life, in real life, who, who is cruel to people, who is very dishonest, who is, is oftentimes a, a, a person of, of very, very questionable basic mores, becomes a completely reversed person in, on the paper. And it's always sad to a lot of people who read certain artists or who look at their paintings who say, boy, I'd sure love to meet that guy. He thinks just like it. And, and he and I, why he's, uh, why, you know, and they meet this guy and he's sitting there and he's lashing people with whips. Well, of course, he's, uh, he only loves on the paper. It's like that, that problem that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the East 70 liberal, who is only liberal as long as the waiter brings his stuff real quick. And the bootblack cleans his shoes perfectly all the time. Then he's then he can be liberal, you know. <laughs> Speaks incessantly of it. Speaking of the incessant speak, this is W O R A M and F M, and I'll be here until one. Uh, if you would like to call the number, it's Circle Seven Four Five One Zero. Just pick up the phone and call them and say Excelsior. I would like to tell you that this booklet. No, I better not. <laughs> Circle Seven. Four five one zero. It's the Art Students League, and you can. You know, speaking of uh, of art forms, of course, you know that one of the major art forms of our time is the turnpike, and it's completely losing control of itself. Just like we are losing, we're losing the point of many things today as we get further and further. I remember reading a beautiful essay by Edmund Wilson about the whole business of sex. And Wilson, who I think is one of the most interesting and certainly one of the most perceptive and consistent social commentators in America, uh, Wilson was remarking at great length in this particular little booklet. And incidentally, if you're interested in this book, I would like to recommend this to you. Uh, last week, when I went to the opening of the new paper book gallery, which is on 6th Avenue, right next to the Howard Johnson's, right down there, the tourist embassy, uh, right at 6th and 8th, I went in there and I did something I've always wanted to do. I made the first purchase in the new store. And I walked around, I looked at things, and I finally selected Edmund Wilson. Uh, I had been looking for this to come out in paperback, and there it was. And so I bought it, and the title of it is A Piece of My Mind. A Piece of My Mind, Reflections at 60 by Edmund Wilson. And it is the reflections of a mature man who has read, who has seen a great deal of the world, and who now has arrived at a point where he feels he can say something about it. And one of the things he was talking about was the whole business of sex in America, particularly, which uh, has become a kind of ritualistic business. 
all the plays are written about it, and all the and the whole point of it has been lost. <laughs> it has been completely lost in most of our activities in the field, and this was really driven home to me when I'm I'm looking at a paper this morning, getting ready to go on the air, and uh, it was uh, the yeah, it's a it's a it's an ad for one of the companies here in town. I don't know which one it is. It's one of the stores which we will not mention. But it's a store that sells women's clothing. And this is an example of just exactly what Wilson was talking about. It shows a whole group of Brigitte Bardot-type line drawings, you know, all these chicks sitting around, and they're wearing bras and slips. That's all they're wearing. And there's all kinds of these little line drawings, all these girls, you know, the ponytails, and looking very, you know, extremely Playboy magazine-ish. And uh, there they are, and it's an ad for school clothing, new school clothing for girls. And the heading of the ad says, The lovable girls get ready for school. The lovable girls. Presumably, of course, there are other types, or else there wouldn't be any such statement made. The lovable girls get ready for school. And then in the little subheading, it says, It costs so little to be lovable. <laughs> It costs so little to be lovable. And uh, this is a fascinating thing, that we seriously believe that we can become lovable by buying the right things. And it doesn't really cost very much to be lovable. And I'm surprised now when I see this, it has dawned on me, there's been little bells ringing in my head, that this is literally quite true. Many people honestly do feel they can buy their way into being lovable or charming or honest or reliable or sober or industrious. As a matter of fact, I, I fully see in the future, I fully see different courses on sincerity. On, on a, it really doesn't cost much to be sincere, to be honest. Uh, take our new 13-week course, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, in honesty. You'll find that it's fun. It's really no problem at all. It costs so little to be lovable, girls. Is there a love? Uh, is there a girl out there who honestly, who honestly, I just want to hear one girl who is really lovable. Will a lovable girl who is getting ready for school give us a call? I'm sure that all of us. This is purely from a laboratory standpoint. This is really honestly just a laboratory exam. I, I just want a very, very. I, I'd like to talk to a lovable girl who is getting ready for school, who has spent very little in being lovable, but who has made judicious purchases and has been unable to therefore become the lovability model of all those around her. Is there a lovable girl with us this morning? Oh, come on. Now, oh, don't be bashful. I really want to know. I would like to talk to a lovable girl. Now, come on. <laughs> and while we're waiting for the call to come in, now, we, don't, we won't use your name. We just seriously want to know whether there's a lovable girl. I would like to recommend that if you are going to make the village scene, that you drop into the new paper book, Store, which is a beautiful little store, and I understand has been a raging success the first week. Uh, this is a little store that is on Sixth Avenue. It uh, it represents the culmination of a lot of work and sweat and effort and dreaming on the part of Marty Geisler, the guy who who uh, is the operator, owner, and conceiver of the whole paper book gallery idea. You will find their new store right on Sixth Avenue. Just go straight down Sixth Avenue into the village. And at 6th and 8th Street, it is on the west side, across sort of an angle across there from the from the subway station. It's it's a door to 
downtown from the Howard Johnsons there. This is the new paper book gallery, and they're open until 2 o'clock this morning. A real swinging thing. They have millions and millions of titles there. Oh, oh, another thing they have. Another thing. They now have, in the original languages, they have paper books from over 25 countries in the original languages. Uh, if you're interested in Portuguese or Spanish or French or Italian, you'll find the original volumes, the original printing, the original in the original language on sale there. This is a, a very intriguing place to visit, and I think you'll find the paper book gallery, in a sense, has become a kind of institution in the village, much more than just a place where books are sold. Their other galleries are over on Sheridan Square at 10th Street, where 10th hits 7th Avenue South. You, you know this area. And then right down the street, there's one at 3rd Street, uh, 3rd Street right off, right back of the NYU campus. And right next to the paper book gallery, which is open, and, as I said, till 2, there is Ying and Yang. Now, I, I'm, I'm constantly getting calls from people after the show asking me to please give them the address. Well, don't call and ask me. Look it up. It's insane calls you get. So I had a crazy thing happen about, oh, a couple of weeks ago. I came into the station very late. I was doing some work here. And uh, it was a wild thing. Suddenly the phone rang in the office. And one of the girls who was working here picked up the phone, and it was about midnight or some crazy hour like that. Picked up the phone and says, hello, what? And some woman is calling up the radio station to ask Gene Shepard what they... What the address of yin and yang is? I said, to, I said to the girl, well, tell her to look it up in the book for crying out loud. I'm not yin and yang. I may be yin, but I'm very little yang in me. I mean, she says, she says, well, well look it up. And the woman got very angry. I, I wonder whether or not Jack Parr gets calls from people asking him to, to please tell him where, he, where, where I can buy buffering. I mean, or does Gary Moore get on the phone and have to argue with people whether, whether or not the, the, the big size of Sal Hepatic is better than the small size? <laughs> I don't know what it is. Do I seem to be particularly vulnerable or what? I'm, I'm afraid so. I'm just like a human pincushion here. I would like to recommend that if you are going to make the village scene, drop into Yin and Yang. It is really a nice little restaurant, and you'll find them at 82 West 3rd Street. Now, if you don't remember where it is, look it up in the phone book. Please do not call me. 82 West 3rd Street. Ying and Yang. It's very simple. It's just, just, just get on, get in any cab and say, take me to 3rd Street, 82 West. That's all there is to it. You can walk. Just go down, get off on the 6th Avenue subway. Get off and walk east on 3rd Street, and you get there. That's all. Very simple. And they are open on Sunday. They have a bar there. And their food is magnificent. And one thing I would like to, again, recommend highly, even if you don't buy anything else there, just go in and have a plate of their chicken wing hors d'oeuvres. They are magnificent, really something out of the ordinary. Just go in and have this and go. And please wear a jacket, by the way. I mean, please, you know, just, 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 just for me, you know. <laughs> no, I don't give a darn. I mean, really. Go in your sackcloth and ashes for all I care. Incidentally, Macy's, by the way, is, is uh, showing a wonderful line of sackcloth and ashes sport coats. Little pockets for the ashes and made of genuine sackcloth that scratches. And uh, they're also bringing out a wonderful line of hair shirts. As you know, we're having a little trouble with uh, 
with conscience and one thing or another in America. And so some of the best sportswear people in the country are taking advantage of this and giving us a chance to wear off our frustrations. And, and I think of nothing, I can think of nothing better than, than a beautiful dark dun-colored hair shirt to wear down to the office under your regular shirt. You turn on... A reminder of the mortality of man, <sighs> the basic sinfulness of all. <laughs> it costs so little to be loved. Is she there? Well, all right. We now, ladies and gentlemen, have a lovable girl on the phone. Now, I, I don't want any kidding around. Now, you really are lovable. Uh, now, wait. Now, just a minute. Now, you say, who 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 uh, feels that you're lovable? My two sons and my husband. They feel that you're lovable. Yeah. Well, when did you first become lovable, madam? Oh, I, I think I must have been lovable uh, for a good many years now. Good many I years. Think I'm you you are you do think you're lovable. All right. Uh, when you first began to trade in lovability, did you find that you had success from the very start? It took a number of years to build up the know-how of lovability? Well, yes, it did. It's not easy, then, to be lovable. It took Edmund Wilson 60, and I'm only uh, half his age. I see. Uh, well, do you agree with this ad that says it costs so little to be lovable? No, not really. You don't agree with it? No. You mean it does cost a lot? It's just a lark. It's, uh, the reason that I quote was... Uh, oh, you're really not lovable. Now, wait a minute. Are you chickening out, madam? Are you saying to me that you're not truly lovable? You're just playing at it? No, I, I'm really lovable. I, I exude lovableness from the inside all the way to the outside. I see. I see. Well, that's uh, very uplifting, madam. I mean, I, I don't mean this as a play on words. It had nothing to do with this ad we're talking about, but it's very uplifting, madam. And uh, I find that... Oh, you've proved that you're lovable by having two children. Yes. I see. Well, thank you very much, ma'am. Uh, okay, thank you, dear. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. Hey, George. Uh, all right, now I'll tell you then. As long as, uh, as we've uh, talked to a lovable girl... You heard what she had to say about lovability. I'm also intrigued by another thing. Recently, I have been noticing ads in more and more areas that say dynamic men of action really know power. Like I'm driving along the other day, and there's a great big ad for gasoline, and it shows this guy who looks kind of mad, and his eyes are sort of sort of crinkly, and his, his skin is leathery, and he's wearing his shirt torn open at the, at the neck. It wasn't, it wasn't unbuttoned. It was torn open. You know, this kind of this big tuft of hair coming out, and he's sitting there, and his hair is cut real short, and above him it says, Men of action and dynamic courage know real power. Obviously, guys who are mad and have, have narrow eyes and tear their shirts open know all about gasoline octanes. Now, I'd like to talk to a genuine man of action, a dynamic man of action out there who knows power. Also, who, who knows real cigarettes because he's a man of action. You know, we, we have this feeling about men of action who know about cigarettes and who know r the real taste of real beer. 
and who know the, the, the subtleties of the various gasoline octanes that are available. To the less, I have a feeling that in the end, uh, Ed, you know, that in the end there is going to be a special gasoline for the timid. I mean, because most of the world is composed of the timid. And there's going to be a picture of this little Mr. Peepers type. And it's a shy, retiring man know the kind of gasoline that gives them the safest, most secure feeling of trailing the pack the easiest possible way. And it throws out a wonderfully comforting smoke screen behind you as you go. <laughs> no one will see where you've been. <laughs> Is there a man of action out there? Oh, more lovable girls? Oh, well, I, I don't mind talking. Excuse me. No, no, well, oh, we don't have time to mess with this, this, this lovable things. And while, while, while we're trying to get through to a man of action who honestly knows... Hey, did you read that great little bit? I'm telling you, we are getting, we are getting really out on a limb. We are getting to be, in a way, uh, we're getting to be something like right, right out of Alice in Wonderland. Did you read about what happened in the turnpike? This is, this is all also, by the way, going into my own time capsule. Here's a little note. It comes from Miami. Now, there is no place that is more drive-in, motel, turnpike-conscious state than Miami. That whole business in Florida, all the turnpikes are going everywhere now. And listen to what happened in Miami. It says, there is a new multi-million dollar expressway providing swift north-south travel through the western end of the city. But motorists can't tell where to get off. The State Road Department explained that a shortage of aluminum tubing has delayed erection of directional signs. I can see some guy eight miles out to sea. <laughs> you know, it's like a flywheel. You get on the turnpike. Did I ever tell you about the time I got on the turnpike once looking for Valley Forge? And I wound up a little bit west of Harrisburg. You get on this giant machine and you just keep going. You can't stop. You know, numbers go past and it doesn't make any difference after a while. Turnpike travel becomes a phenomenon in itself. It isn't where you're going to that counts. The reason they didn't put the directional signs up there was a Freudian thing, obviously, because the direction isn't important. The travel is the most important thing. Getting on the turnpike is more important than getting off the turnpike. Getting off the turnpike means you're out in that rotten old world out there, you know, where people have holes in the street, and they fist fight and argue and sit in hedges and glower and smoke sh short fat cigar. You, know? you don't want to, you want to be on this smooth concrete ribbon to, to paradise. Wherever that is, you know. And so the, the idea of putting up the directional signs only comes as an afterthought. Believe me, have you ever wondered why so many turnpikes you can't tell where you're going half the time? You whistle right back, and you whistle past at 180 miles an hour, past these little itsy-bitsy signs that are set there, because going there is not really that important. It's being on the turnpike that's important much more important. Why more guys talk about their vacations in terms of how far they went, how much gas mileage they got, how fast they got there, uh, how many hours of travel. One guy did the final thing. Did you hear about the guy that spent his two-week vacation on the turnpike here this past summer? In fact, it was this summer. It was, it was in June or July. He got on, on the turnpike, I think at Willow Grove, outside of Philadelphia, and he headed his car west, and he just continued to stay on the turnpike for two full weeks and did not turn his ignition off once. 
He went something like 10,000 miles on turnpikes, just drove round and round and round. He saw more turnpike signs, more big signs that say slow up, more big signs that say 60 miles, per resume speed. That's all he saw his whole two-week vacation. And he was given coast-to-coast -coast news notice about it. The most idiotic feat I've heard in years. He saw nothing but Howard Johnson's for two solid weeks. And the kids are sitting in the back and his old lady sitting next to him. And they're all sweating out this great adventure. Boy, just just see this guy, you know. He's, he's on that Miami turnpike, and he's going... The drag goes past him. There goes an alpha past him. Palm trees are whistling. It's been now four hours. He has left... He has left West Palm Beach, and it's been four hours. They should have been 20 miles past Miami already. The kid in the back seat. Nanny, nanny, stop. Ah, shut up, will there goes a helicopter whistling over him, and the helicopter is from the local radio station, and every once in a while it breaks in on his radio set and says, Here are the traffic conditions on the great northwestern, eastern, southern outbound highway. There's a traffic jam. Traffic circle 74. An accident at traffic circle 14 in Cloverleaf. Brought to you by the International Automobile Insurance Corporation of America. Boom. We'll be back in just five minutes. I've just spotted another accident. We'll give you the details in five minutes. <laughs> Guys whistling along. <laughs> now look, why didn't you tell us that back of that last Howard Johnson for crying uh, here's uh, Charlie Brown reporting from our auto-rotating helicopter. We are now on Cloverleaf 14. Oh, what madness. Oh, what madness. Whither goest thou? And then, finally, did you read this beautiful news note that came out of Long Island? Listen to this guy. Can you please give me my American music? This is a, an American odyssey. Not only are the turnpike drivers in Miami whistling on far down into the keys just by sheer momentum, inertia, but listen to this one. A motorist who sought to recover 50 cents in tolls that he had paid on the Hutchison River Parkway was in jail today because he had written, quote, a threatening letter to the state highway department. The motorist, Walter M. Weber, a 34-year-old handyman was arrested yesterday at his home in Uniondale, Long Island. He acknowledged having written the letter because he felt, he said, he felt impelled, quote, to fight for my rights and my money. According to the police, the letter contained a threat that Mr. Weber would steal some dynamite and blow up the Westchester County Roadway unless his toll payments were returned. I'm going to blow it up. I'm going to get some dynamite and blow it up. Mr. Weber said that three weeks ago, while taking a quiet pleasure ride with his mother and his aunt, stopped at a parkway toll gate to ask directions. According to Mr. Weber, he gave the attendant 25 cents and received a set of confusing instructions that brought him back to the same toll booth 40 minutes later, this time from the opposite direction. 
He said the collector then stuck out his hand and said, Give me more money. Demanded a second toll. Judge Albert Seymour ordered him committed to the Nassau County Jail in East Meadow in in lieu of a $500 bond. Blow it up. He, you see, he made the great mistake of not realizing the basic reason for turnpikes. Mr. Weber, I must tell you, you don't fit. The basic reason is not to get somewhere. Get that out of your head. It's to be on the turnpike. That's the basic reason for turnpikes. Now get it out of your head. Cut it out. Stop thinking of cars as things to take you from one place to the next. They're things to sit in. On your big old fat duff. On the big old overstuffed cushions there. And just sail. Now get it out of your head, Mr. Weber. Poor old Mr. Weber's not hearing us. He's in his cell where they don't allow radios. I'm blown up. <laughs> A pleasure ride with his mother and his aunt. His mother and his aunt. Ah, the dream. The American Odyssey. Sixty miles. Basic limit. Twenty-eight miles to the next restaurant. Gas-filled station. Repairs. Handy. Yes, singer, that's my baby. No, oh, you mean there's somebody out there? We're making a, this. A, I'd like to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, we're doing a laboratory survey today to contact lovable people who are being made, as you know, the object of many great advertising campaigns recently. And I hope, do we have here a dynamic man? Who understands true power? I see. Uh, hello, sir. Uh, you are dynamic. You are dynamic. Well, when did you... Would you please speak... It, it's very, discour- very discouraging to hear a dynamic man speak in such a, an almost inaudible voice. So hit it, man. You've been spending 10 cents a gallon more than your car can use? How do you mean that? Because I have a little six-cylinder car and it's putting me 42 cents a gallon for power. Oh, well, I see. But doesn't it give you an additional feeling of power and genuine dynamism, though, when you have that extra octane in the tank? But that extra octane, I still can't hit more than 40. You still can't hit more than 40, even with the extra octane, but... You must have it, but yes, I understand what you mean there. In other words, the power is there, and that's enough. That's enough. Even though I can't use it, it's enough. It's enough to know that. It, it is a comforting feeling in this in this day, sir, of crumbling morals and uh, ideals. You know, you realize that President Eisenhower recently had to appoint a committee to decide what America's ideals were. You've heard about that, haven't you? Well, uh, it sounds to me like you'd be a good man to talk to this committee because obviously you have found something that you can hold on to through the additional octane in your gasoline, right? Right. Do you feel that uh, your life has taken on a new direction since you've discovered that your, your, let's say, your stream of life is directly connected with your gas tank? Well, thank you very much, sir, and we hope you get there. We hope you get there soon. Right. 
All right, oh, thank you, sir. That was um, a dynamic man who just called in to tell us his basic philosophy of life. And uh, could you hear him out there? It's very sad to relate that this dynamic man did not hit the mic very hard, but uh, I think that his he was you know the spirit was there. Uh, speaking of the spirit, if uh, you would like to fly the coop, I don't know whether or not uh, there is much coop flying done lately in this neighborhood. Anyway, it has been a long time since I've really flown the coop myself. But if you feel the urge to fly the coop and really do it up brown, I would suggest that you contact your travel agent and do it via Lufthansa. In fact, they have a special flight which leaves on Wednesday called the Fly the Coop flight, in which all the windows are shrouded and every passenger is given dark glasses as he comes aboard. His name is cleverly disguised in the manifest lists, and he'll be able to make it without so much as even the breath of scandal. So I would suggest you contact your travel agent at Lufthansa and find out how you can get to Central Europe without anybody in the block being even aware that you... You know, that's the saddest thing of all. Really, when you come back from some wild place and you get back and you find that nobody even knows you've been gone, nor do they care. I walked into the station today. I said, I just left Cuba 24 hours ago. And they said, oh, oh, for crying out loud. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's not quite the same anymore. But yes, it is. That's the secret. So why don't you do it via Lufthansa? I mean, this is an airline's. I mean, an airline. You move through the air with the greatest of grace and speed. Like an arrow, thou flyest under the sun, scuttling, scurrying over the face of this, this, this moving, sullen globe. Like an arrow, a silver dart in the air. And all this for the price of an ordinary passage. Make it Lufthansa and go right to Munich and begin to, you know, just sit for a while. A little beer. And then head off into the Alps. Lufthansa. Now look, I know, I know, I know it's connected with the same problem. You gotta go. You just gotta go. In fact, man's basic restlessness has been one of the, on the other hand, you see, uh, there are two ways, two, two incidental ways to look at this. It's, it's like, it's like the way, it's like the way old Freddie, it's like the way old Freddie put it. Or was it Lonnie? Yeah, I think it was Lonnie. Oh, old Lonnie, when they when they put the thumb on him there in Louisville, and he was dragged kicking and screaming away, and he was incarcerated in the local jug and finally sentenced for life imprisonment. Well, I guess I did it because it was nothing good on television. Wasn't really much to do around here. So, Jenny Lou and me, we just got in a... You know, 46 Hudson. That old 46 Hudson of mine, she really goes. She really barrels. Got dual cobs. We went down, we knocked over that SO station. Of course I did it because there's nothing much to do, actually. Nothing much on television. This is WOR Radio, your station for news.
New for you, for you, for you. The Journal American announces a dramatic million-dollar expansion program for the Sunday edition. Eighteen new attractions for all the family, with many of your old favorites now in the Sunday Journal American for the first time. Here is a new concept in service for newspaper readers, a new dimension never before explored by any New York newspaper. Read a full-page family guidance forum with latest information on health, beauty, home decoration, child care, good manners, romance, social problems. A full page of top fashion tips with photos of latest fashions. Hey, baby. <laughs> it's itsy bitsy me. Ba 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 bo 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 a pertinent hypothetical question. I am in great voice tonight, baby. You realize that if I could play something, I could be a fantastic jazz musician, because I got all these great ideas, but I can't play nothing. Listen to that chromatic. <laughs> See, I'm sitting on my duff today, trying to outlive my lunch, feeling fat and rotten. I had been out with the guy from the Kudner Agency, and we had been laughing it up and drinking it up. And it occurred to me, see, when I'm sitting here, we're over at Le Mamriton. Le Mamriton. Which is, as you know, expense account heaven. Are you listening to me, Chicorino, hey? <laughs> you look fantastic without your pants. That's why they invented Venetian blinds, baby. You always have the feeling that you can see through them, but you really can't, you know. <laughs> I'm really belting it out here. Oh, you, you mean you really want to know what my pertinent hypothetical question is? I did not know that you had heard me. This is an unexpected pleasure. And a, I might say, considerable surprise. <laughs> you know, I don't know what it is. Why I have this, I have this uncontrollable, I have this uncontrollable tendency to be sarcastic. <laughs> okay, here it is. I have come back from lunch. I'm sitting there. 
Listen, Mulligan has no ideas that I haven't had before Mulligan had He was just lucky enough to have an old man who bought him a baritone sax when he was nine. My old man bought me a pair of shoes. With a pocket for a knife on the side. He immediately disarmed me. He says, no kid's going to carry a knife in his shoes in my family. So I went around with a clothespin in that pocket with the flap buttoned down. It looked like I had a knife. I'll never forget the time that Esther Jane finally reached over across the aisle, unbuttoned the flap, says, can I use your knife, and pulled out the clothespin. That was when I began to hate my old man. It has not stopped since. (laughs) <laughs> All right, so it's $20 an hour it costs. I mean, it's good for laughs. And a $20 laugh is a better laugh than a $3 laugh. Especially when you're laughing at yourself, you know. <laughs> and your old man. And everybody around you. Oh, by the way, why is it that you not only put the bolt across the door with the chain, you double lock it and you put a chair up against it? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid that if somebody gets into this place, it's going to be, I mean, like Johnny bar the door, you will not... Are you, well, I mean, just a little suggestion. Um, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm getting off the subject again. You see what he's searching now. <laughs> That's supposed to be a great, he's not making it there. <laughs> hear him? Whenever I feel like I'm not doing it, I put this one on, you know, and I can, I can hear both of them fooling around trying to, you know. Oh, all right. You want it now, huh? My pertinent hypothetical question. Okay. See, I come back. I come back from lunch. I like endings. It just pours out there like it's on sliced peaches. Babu Well, now here it is. I am sitting on my duff after I have had this fantastic fried sole in butter, butter, Moliere, Moliere, Rimbo, Rambo, Rimbaud, 